We are closing off chapter 4 of Galatians here, and uh, these next 11 verses, they have, they have many levels that we're going to touch on. One level, they're speaking right to the Galatians and straight to like the agitators, the Judaizers that, you know, that Paul has been talking through through these first four chapters. Another level, it speaks deeply to us like as we journey through life and as we journey through this world. It communicates this freedom you know, if we feel trapped. And this is a profound truth that we need to grasp as we head into these next two chapters. And it talks about freedom in Christ. It talks about fruit of the Spirit. And so there are numerous levels of communication in the Scripture. His point here is not only like the gospel makes absolutely anyone a child of God. Paul has been pounding this on you. The gospel makes you a child of God. But that the most proud and moral and religiously able are often the ones they are left out. The gospel it has this reverse on the world's values, right? If we look at the world, it's about do, 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 do. You know, like get better, get better, get better, get better. Right? It speaks a lot about our own strength. The gospel is like, hey, come to me and I'll take it all. And then sometimes we continue to go back trying to take back what we've given because we treat, try to make ourselves better. But we realize we just need to go to Christ. And so in verse 24, in this scripture, chapter 4, verses 21 to 31, Paul, he says that this is the allegory. So he's saying like this is, um, he's treating us like this, like let, let's look at this situation like this. There's this battle of the church in Galatia, but there's also this battle within our hearts. And so it's like this parable he's using of this, this story that we're going to read about um, that he touches back in Genesis. And it deeply connects to what's happening in the scripture, but deeply connects to us. But he's using this story from the Old Testament, and I want to like preface what, before I enter in with this. That we might find hard. It's a story about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and what seems like an unfortunate situation. Sarah can't have children. She's been promised children. But she can't have them. They, Abraham and Sarah, they have Hagar, who's their maidservant. By law, you know, Abraham's able to lay with his bondservant to have a child. Sarah says this, and this happens. Abraham lays with Hagar, they have this child. But you know what? Sarah, jealousy ensues. And then Abraham is in trouble because he didn't believe God. God had promised he'd bear a child through Sarah, but he didn't believe it. Laid with Hagar. And then this happened. Showed a lack of trust of Abraham. It goes on to, then this child that Hagar had goes to represent something of unfaithfulness. And eventually, Hagar is down the road asked to leave with this child. Seems hard. And as we look at Hagar's life, we, we know this. Hagar was given up by Pharaoh to Abraham. Then, he was given up by Sarah to Abraham. She was. And then, when things weren't going good between Abraham and Sarah... Abraham gave her up too. It's like, you gotta go. You know, the sad thing is, Hagar would have learned about God from Abraham and Sarah. They would have told her about the Lord who had made heaven and earth, the God who loves undeserving people. They would have told, like, this is the God who chose to bless a rebel world through a son in whom his blessing would be found. In the kindness of God, Hagar finds herself in this family. God has chosen to bless. Now think about what happens next. The people whom she learned, all that she knew about God, turned out to be desperately flawed people. Desperately flawed believers. That must have been devastating for Hagar. What good thoughts can she have of Abraham and Sarah's God after this? This, is, this just feels terrible. And it's not surprising that she runs away from the family of faith. She ran from Sarah and from Abraham, and she ran from the God that she felt had failed her so badly. 
It seems hard. As we enter into the scripture, we're like, it seems hard. As he's going to use this allegory of what Hagar's child means and what Sarah's child means. But we need to know this. Hagar was loved by God. Like, you just painted a pretty grim picture. How did she love by God? In her emotional abandonment and spiritual wounded state, it was God who came to her. And Genesis 16:7 says, The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. A woman who felt used, a woman who felt mistreated, and now hurt is found by God at the spring. And this is true for us. You're hurt, but God finds us. At the moment when she needed something, the moment she is probably feeling lost, God sees her and loves her and says, I hear your suffering. He's like, I hear your suffering. Genesis 16.11 says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. God hears the tears as well as he hears the prayers. He has heard your suffering. Maybe some of you are going through it right now. You're just crying, just tears. You know, he hears them. He hears your suffering. He hears your affliction. He's coming running to you. Those exhausted sighs, right? When you're just, you just feel lost. You feel, I just can't do it anymore. And just let out that, he hears those. God told her that she was to give the son the name Ishmael. And Ishmael means God has heard. So every time she'd call out his name, every time she'd be like, Ishmael, Ishmael, she would always be saying, God hears, God has heard. So as we enter this story a bit deeper, as we dive into these next 10 verses, and as it seems like, oh, this seems harsh, Let's remember, God loves Hagar. God came to his, this first single mother and gave her words of encouragement. He saw her, came to her, and he comforted her, and that this is the heart of God. This is the heart of him. So, let's pray before we enter in. If you don't have your Bible, we're gonna, you can flip there, but it's Galatians 4, 21 to 31. And uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you that we, you love us. That you hear our afflictions, you hear our tears, Lord, you hear our exhausted sighs, and Lord, you care for us deeply. And so as we read this story, Lord, as we go through it, Lord, let us realize that you are trying to speak something to us. Lord, when I talk about my brother, Lord, to my, my boys, I know that you love Brendan immensely, but I use it as like, Brendan, he made these decisions. But you know what, that does it. God still loves him, God's pursuing him. So let's realize, we go through this story. God loves us. That you have spiritual truths for us as we read these next 10 verses. And we're excited for what you have for us today. Amen. Amen. So Galatians 4, 21 to 31. If you have your Bibles, you may turn. Um, but it's going to be up here on the screen if you don't. It says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of divine promise. And so as we look at these first four verses, in the beginning, there's this kind of like a sarcastic tone that uh, Paul has here. He's like, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? You know what? He's like a little bit sarcastic. I can tell my mom, you know, there is sarcasm in the Bible. And so... Um, just listen to Paul when he talks to the Galatians. And she'll be like, don't do that way with me, Jeremy. <laughs> you know how I feel about that. But after that, he jumps into a Bible study in a sense for the Galatians. He's like, 
Are you aware of what it says? Alright, well, let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 16. And the reason Paul uses this story is quite brilliantly. The basic point of the false teachers was, yes, it is good that you believe in Christ. This is what the false, these are what the Judaizers are saying. It's good that you believe in Christ. But you'll have to obey the whole law before you can be considered the children of Abraham. And Paul, right, he's been pointing this the whole time. The moment you believe in Christ, you are children of Abraham, the heirs of all the promises of God. And the moment you start thinking you have to obey the whole law, you're not children of Abraham at all. So Paul goes back to this story of Hagar and Sarah. He goes back to it, which was likely used by those teachers at the time who told the Galatians, you know what? You're not really children of Abraham unless you obey all the laws. Paul is turning the tables on them by reminding them that Abraham, yeah, he's like, yeah, Abraham had two sons. He had two of them. One by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. Therefore, there are two ways of relating to Abraham. One right way and one wrong way. Abraham had Ishmael and he had Isaac by two different women. And they were born in very different circumstances, which are crucial to understand the point Paul is making. God had promised that he would provide Abraham with an heir to live in the land that God would show Abraham. He's like, I promise you, you're going to get a son. I promise. Right? But he was old. But on top of that, his wife Sarah, she was old and she was barren. And he had lived in this land for a decade without children. And as I was like battling through this, thinking about it, I was like, thinking about this promise, like how many of us, I guess really women, would, would want to be pregnant in your 90s? I don't know, you let your mind think about that for a second. Um, my wife's 32, and she, like, the thought of maybe having another kid, she just grimaces. But she's already had four, and so she's already physically gone through that. But she's like, no thanks. 90 years old, I'm not sure people are lining up for that blessing. I'm not 100% sure, but anyways, Sarah suggested that Abraham, like, maybe sleep with the maidservant, sleep with the maidservant, Hagar, so they could build a family through her. Abraham, he's like, all right, I'm done with this. He agreed. Hagar conceived, and Ishmael was born. But then 14 years later, when Abraham was 100, he had another child, this time to the barren wife, Sarah. Genesis 21, 1, 3. The Lord did say, the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age. Abraham gave the son, they gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore for him. I'm not sure as we've read that, if you're catching it. The repetition of the name Sarah. He wants to make it very clear. Like the reader, we're making it that Isaac is the son of Sarah, the barren, childless woman. Paul sums up the differences in birth when he says, the son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. Saying, yes, this, the son of the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. Abraham knew that he would have a child who would be his heir. He knew this. And bear of the line which would bring salvation to the world. He knew this. This is the truth that was given to him. The promise. How could he bear the son? How could he do it? Sarah was old, like we said. It would take an extraordinary, supernatural act of God for a son to come that way. But on the other hand, the maidservant was young and she was fertile. This seemed like maybe the way. By the customs of the time, it would be perfectly legal to have a son through her. Though, 
it would not be according to God's will. We see that in Genesis 2.24. Abraham decided, he's like, I, not to wait on God's supernatural actions, not waiting on him. Instead, he decided to get his son through his human attainment, through his religious act, for him to trying to do it on his own. Through what he was capable of, and what Hagar was capable of, is that they're capable. I can do this, I can do this on my own. What is Paul trying to say? Where is the connection? How do we make sense of this? How is this working? We begin to see the connection of what Paul is doing, and he gives the reader some direction in our faith, too. The Judaizers are like, hey, if you want to be sons of Abraham, you want to be Jewish like us, you need to be circumcised and such to be a Jewish and therefore be children of the promise. And it speaks of doing it on your own. It speaks of your own volition. It speaks of trying to make it, trying to be the one who does this. Paul's like, hey, if you're saying that, if you think you really need that to be saved, I'm saying this. There were two kids Abraham had, one of the promise and another of his own strength, one of the flesh, one where he went on his own to make it happen. And so Paul is beginning to line up who really is the sons of the promise and who really are the sons of the flesh. And the one way leaves you in slavery, it leaves you not to freedom, but leaves you to bondage. One way is about your own strength, trying to gain salvation, trying to gain your worth, making the law the thing that saves you or gives you the worth. The other way gives you freedom through the worth of Christ Jesus bestowed upon you. And this is quite the argument he's starting to lay. And this would have been profound. This would have been heavy as they would have heard this, the Galatians and the Judaizers. This would have been a heavy hit. He's laying the groundwork. And so as we look at this story, and we're like, how do we pull this truth for me today? How do I, well, how do I take this and apply it to my life? I'll leave you with this question. Are we relying on our own initiative or divine initiative? Abraham and Sarah, they began and organized something in human strength when they came across a problem. They had a problem. They looked at the promise that God had given him, and they were not sure how it was going to get there, how it was going to happen, or how it was going to get accomplished, and decided to take things into their own hands. We have ever been there, taking things into our own hands. I will raise my hands proudly. Not proudly, actually. The Galatians hit a point in their faith where they had the promise of Jesus, and they were walking with him by faith, but couldn't understand how to continue, couldn't understand to move forward. And they encountered something the Judaizers made sense to them. Sarah and Abraham thought they solved the problem. They're like, here, we have our heir now. We did it. This is going to be awesome. This is good. God, you know what? You promised it. it can- we made it come to fulfillment. Yay. But they initiated something and tried to solve something in their human flesh rather than trusting and believing in the reality and the promise and the power of God. We see this problem for us. We often try to solve our problems and maybe in human strength, believing that the promise, like, uh, we know you've given me a promise, but I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm going to try to make this happen. You know, I've done try to do many things on my own strength. Some things that pop into my mind, relationships, specifically with the opposite gender, Before Kim, all my own strength, not good. Like, even though I had these looks of Brad Pitt and uh, muscles of Vin Diesel, I'm not sure why people are laughing, but But I remember trying to make them work. Did not work. Very failure. I'm not successful. 
But then I had this friendship with Kim, and then this friendship started turning into something different. I was just enjoying being uh, just at Bible school, loving life, and you know, I had making relationships and friendships, and then something materialized. And then this relationship, friendship turned into a relationship. Then she turned into my fiance. Then I turned into a Canadian citizen. Then I put on 20 pounds, and then boom, four kids. And this is where we are today. But even as we were looking for a house, like I remember looking for a house, and you know what, there was some that were up there that were out of our price range that would just wouldn't work, and you know what, you're like, I guess I should do, be responsible and go look at them, but you're like, it's not going to work. But you go and you look at them, and we looked at them, and we were like, you know what, I can't see the next house. I don't know what's going to be on the opposite side, but this one's right in front of me. It might be not what I want, might not be what I'm feeling God's going to say, but I feel like I should put an offer in. And so we try to push in on our human initiative. Trying to be like, I just don't see the promise, or I forget the promise, and so I'm going to try to do this on my own. And you realize you start to put your hope in yourself, and it doesn't work out. Chris and I, as we were heading into this new year, we wanted to do a program, and then there were just things that were happening that we just felt like there was pressure coming against us. And sometimes when we think it's a God thing, we just say, yeah, I push through and it's going to be great. But sometimes God's like, if you just push through and you can't give it your all, it's, it's not my timing, it's not going to be great. And so, we had this meeting, it was before I was leaving, but then he was leaving for India, and he was like, yeah, I'll make some calls, and then as we left the meeting, I was like, I just feel like we're really just trying to do this on our own. Chris called back in two hours, and he's like, gave me the news, he's like, yeah, it looks like it's going to work here, and he said the same thing I was thinking, he's like, I just really feel like we're just trying to do this on our own. Come on, God, he, we realize this, and so we just did, we, we just yeah, we are, Chris. Let's, let's, let's put this on the back I'm sure that in maybe two or three months, it's going to be the right time. True freedom only comes through divine initiative. By resting in the promises of God, what God himself has pledged to do for us. We preserve our spiritual freedom when we rely upon God's promises. Not our own ingenuity, our own resourcefulness, or our own power. In fact, the extent to which we take matters into our own hands is the extent to which we forfeit our freedom in Christ. But on the other hand, the extent to which we trust in God's promises and entrust ourselves into His hands is the extent that we'll walk into freedom. So the question, like, how do we rely upon divine initiative rather than human initiative? Like, how do we do that? Well, look into the promises of God. Seems like a simple answer. But how do we know we're relying on God's promises? But how well we wait. And waiting is not our favorite. Patience is our barometer for success. When we know the promise, how are we patient in that promise? Are we waiting? Trusting? Walking in faith? When he feels the next step calling us to walk into that next step? Let's consider the temptation to retaliate. Someone has wronged us. And we want to get back to get even. But the Bible expressly forbids it. And why? Because vengeance is ultimately God's job, not ours. Beloved, never avenge yourself. Believe it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that's in Romans 12, 19. That's the promise. How do we, are we just, do we trust in that? The prospect of God's vengeance, it's sobering, but it's also liberating. We don't have to bear the burden of vengeance. On our backs. Instead we lay it down at the foot of the cross and trust in Him as the one who will follow through. 
so much easier than the times I was trying. And maybe you're going through a situation, situation right now as we speak. Maybe you're sitting in your chair and you're tired and you feel burdened. You feel the weight of what you're trying to do. You feel like you're pushing through. You're trying to accomplish it. Maybe you're just like, I just can't do this anymore. Well, I'm here to say, just lay it all down at his feet. He's already gone ahead of you. He has promises for you. They're good. Trust doesn't look like doing nothing, but it takes steps as you feel Christ leading you to take the next step. So, step of water. We begin to see the foundation that Paul's laying here, the groundwork of what he wants to do. There are two members of the family, one that keeps us in slavery and one that speaks on our own, the one that speaks on our own strength, and there's this promise, this way of the promise. And so, the next verses, he begins this, to describe which group is which. Galatians 4, 25-27 says, These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants. One co- covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud. You you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So these verses, 24 to 25, Paul does something unbelievable. He aligns Hagar with someone. And look who he aligns Hagar with. The woman represents two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Paul is saying clearly that Hagar and her son Ishmael represent the law covenant of Sinai and the earthly city of Jerusalem, the Judaizers which by and large consists of persons who have not accepted Christ. And these people, they're in slavery because they are under the law, he's saying. He's saying you're, they're under the law. The covenant is based in earthly Jerusalem, he's saying, which was the capital of religious Judaism. This was the way most Jewish people in Paul's day tried to be right with God. This is how they tried to be right with him, through the law by trusting in their ability to please God by keeping the law. But children of the new covenant, children of the new covenant, the new following of Christ, are children of the Jerusalem above. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is home to all believers. This is what means to be descended from Abraham. And so Paul's point through chapter 3 and 4 has brilliantly come to a close with this with this allegory, depicting who's of the flesh and who's not. By sleeping with Hagar, Abraham was choosing to rely on his own capabilities, his own way. He was opting to work for his gain, for his son. He was acting in faith, but in faith in himself, in his own savior. The immediate result, disaster. And we've been there. It just feels like a disaster when we rely on ourselves. Sarah becomes terribly jealous of Hagar and the family was wrecked with Division and sadness, not a great family dynamic. This is not surprising, since the Bible, it just comes saying, uniformly condemns polygamy and having concubines. And here, God, although he looked after Hagar and Ishmael, 
Never want to direct his promise that way. Abraham's bid for self-salvation, it failed. It failed. Abraham did not rely on God's grace, did not rely on his supernatural action, did not rely upon the one who had promised him everything, who promised him this. When we fail to rest in God and instead seek to be our own savior, the result is havoc. It's havoc. And disintegration, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, we feel that. We feel separate. And through the false teachers, proudly, though they proudly consider themselves related to Abraham by Sarah and Isaac, Paul says they're spiritually descended from the slave woman, the Gentile, the outcast. That would have been like, what are you saying, Paul? Like a slap in the face of the Judaizers. Their heart and approach to God is like Abraham with Hagar. And the fruit in their lives is like Ishmael. Just more slavery. And so if we're taking a head count, if we're like, what is he saying? What does it look like? This is what it looks like. I think I have a graph up here. Oh, look at that graph. It's beautiful. The Ishmaels, legalism, slavery, and bondage. Ishmael, born according to the flesh. Ishmael, coming from the earthly Jerusalem, the one that was the home of the Judeans, the one that wouldn't like, bring us the freedom. They had many children, but they were very persecuting. They would come against the Isaacs. And they would be inheriting nothing. Their relationship based on law-keeping of do's and don'ts. But the Isaacs, true Christianity, there was freedom. Isaac was born by God's promised miracle. Coming from the heavenly Jerusalem, coming from the Mount Zion above. Where we say is our home, which Jerusalem is where we want to be. Many more children, right? Many. We sing about the, like the song, Father Abraham, many sons. I don't want to do the actions. You can stand up with me. But persecuted. We are persecuted. And we see this with Christ, right? He said he was per- Christ was persecuted. And he talks about that we'll be persecuted. Inheriting everything and relationship based on trusting God, trusting in Him. And so to bring this point home, Paul quotes a scripture from Isaiah. And this scripture shows how it's Christ who is the one who produces out of the barrenness. Christ is the one who produces out of the barrenness that we have in our lives. It's not us that does it. And we can take this point and practically apply it to our lives. Here's the context. Here's what we how we can apply this to our life. The prophecy of Isaiah looks back to Genesis 16. We see this prophecy of Isaiah in this section of scripture in which God looks down on two women. God sees, looks down on two women. One beautiful and fertile, the other barren and old. And he chooses to save the world through the barren one. Because the gospel says this, grace is not just for fertile Hagar's, but for barren Sarah's. If Sarah can have a future, anyone can. And through her family would come another unlikely son, born to another woman who could have no expectation, who had no expectation of being pregnant. Not because she was barren, but I guess that she was in a sense, but because she was a virgin. And though that son, and through this son, all the peoples of the world, all the peoples of this wonderful place will be blessed, just as God's promise to Sarah and Abraham. Paul uses a prophecy that said to the Israelites in exile, 
a barren people. The Israelites, they thought they were lost. Their numbers were dwindling. There was no hope for them. They felt weak. They felt like they were failures. Israel was floundering. They were going through this. They're like, God, our numbers, we're, we're dwindling. We're dying here. Israel was like a barren woman who could not conceive. Our numbers are small. We keep getting persecuted, they said. God is able to take nothing and create something. We see that God takes nothing and creates something many times throughout the Bible. We see it right here. God brought something out of nothing in Sarah's womb. He brought something out of nothing. He brought the Israelites of what they thought was the end of their national existence. They felt this is it. This is over. Not, this, this is it for us. Out of nothing, he created the earth. Mary, a virgin, Mary, a virgin, impossible to get pregnant, but God spoke to that woman and bore a child who was a savior of the world. We look at the tomb. We look at when Jesus rose in three days. The situation seemed hopeless in the tomb, but on the third day, he rose out of that tomb, and out of that barren tomb, we now have the promise of eternal life. God takes something out of nothing. He makes something out of nothing. What seems like a barren situation to us is an opportunity for Christ to birth something in us. It's an opportunity to fulfill his promise, an opportunity for him to come in power. God has a remarkable way of doing that. They felt trapped in these circumstances, the Israelites, and, and Sarah also. But God's promise was bigger than their circumstances, it was bigger than what they're going through. And maybe we feel trapped in our circumstances, where we're at right now. Maybe there's something that's happening in your life. You're like, I just feel trapped. I feel stuck. I feel lost. We like a lack of work. Maybe unemployment. Maybe there's setbacks in your financial state. Maybe there's family relationships that are rocky that aren't going well. I think of those stories that Chris tells of those girls when they came... When he, go, when he went to Guatemala, they came into nothing. They've heard of the English house, and these two girls then got to the English house. They grew in their knowledge of English, but grew with Christ, and they came, and something was beautiful. They were like providing for their family. What seemed like an impossible situation for them, what seemed like nothing, God created something. I look back on what felt like a hopeless situation with Evie. She's having seizures. As a father, I'm powerless to make those seizures go away. Powerless. Times were hard. Things didn't look good. Things were looking bleak. Who, what could I do? Simply just trust in the God who makes a situation that feels like nothing can come out of this. Something great. I could put my trust in earthly Jerusalem but I realize it has the power to do nothing. So I put my trust in the heavenly Jerusalem. Paul is telling the church of Galatian, Galatia that why the Judaizers are pulling you is what they're trying to pull you is to the earthly Jerusalem. Where it cannot save you, where it's on your own strength. The way you move forward, as we talked last week, is with what I'm telling you, with Christ, by looking forward. So through Jesus, it is connected to heavenly Jerusalem, where we want to be. Now, we're going to close with these last three verses. Galatians 4, 28-31 says, Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. He's saying, now you brothers and sisters of Galatia, like Isaac, are children of the promise. 
At that time, the son bore according to the flesh, persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. And it's the same now. What you're experiencing right now, it's the same. But what the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. The end, it speaks of this strife between two siblings. It talks about this strife that's happening between Isaac and Ishmael. Right, we see where it says, At the time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It's talking about Ishmael and Isaac, you know what, not getting along. There are moments between these two that are just like a sibling rivalry. In Genesis 21, it says that the child born to the slave woman, Ishmael, laughed at the child born to the free woman, Isaac. A little bit of hostility. Early Jewish interpreters of this passage understood this to indicate that. One text, for example, says that Ishmael made war on Isaac. Made war on him. Mom and dad. Make him feel good. Another describes how Ishmael, while pretending to play, covertly shot arrows at his brother Isaac. This, to me, sounds like a Tuesday on a Saskatchewan farm. Like, they, they, they like, go to the other side and they try to shoot arrows and see if they can hit them. Or you ever see that where people are standing in a circle and then they take like a football and they throw it up and see where it's going to hit somebody on the head? I saw someone take a baseball bat, throw it up, and then I was like, oh, you guys are crazy. And so... My brother and I, we would have these moments of robbery. If I was to describe my brother, he's like Andre the Giant, and I'm like Pee Wee Herman. And so, like, he's very big, I'm not very big. Uh, but we'd have these moments of wrestling, and I would be like, I can beat him, and I'm going to do this. And he would throw me through a wall. Not even an exaggeration. I have been thrown through a wall by my brother. And so, this rivalry that takes place between us. Paul is saying to the Galatians, he's like, the way I taught you, is the way of the promise. The way I taught you is the way. Ishmael persecuting Isaac, it speaks on many levels that we can take and we can look at today. One, Paul is saying, what has happened between these two warring brothers, way back then, way back in Genesis, is happening even today. We see it in the scripture. The flesh, it persecutes the spirit. Ishmael persecuting Isaac. Jews persecuting Jesus. Religious, persecuting the spiritual. There's animosity between the flesh and the spirit. There's this battle. There's this battle that's happening. In our lives, in our church, in our community, in our country, we feel it. We feel this battle between the flesh and the spirit. Two, we see this. The religious will persecute the non-religious because the gospel is more threatening to religious people than non-religious people. Because religious, they can kind of be you know, a bit touchy, a bit nervous because if they're standing with God, they don't know where it's at. Insecurity can make you feel like a little bit hostile, maybe a little bit unstable, right? You don't feel like when you're insecure, you just don't feel like you're standing on solid ground. There's someone who differs from us and we are not hateful or hostile in our response. You know that you're not religious. Like you just know that you, that's not you. You're just not hateful. You're like, I know where I stand. Another thing we can take it's just like when Ishmael, who was born of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit. That is what's happening now. We need not to let them in, is what he said. 
Nothing? Oh, there we go. Paul is saying, just like when Ishmael, who born, was born of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit, that is what's happening now. That's what's happening right now. You need to not let them in, is what he's saying. Don't let them in. So in our church, when that happens, there needs to be some discipline. We need to deal with those agitators, the false teachers, what they are bringing, because it will only enslave us in the church. But personally, he's speaking to the Galatians on this level too. Personally, in their spiritual life, he's saying this. Paul knows the Galatian must also root out what enslaves them personally, what's enslaving them in their minds and in their hearts. The sins that so easily entangle must be laid aside. And Paul sees all sort of petty, he sees all sort of fleshly behavior in the people of Galatia. There's enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. These are fruits of what enslaves you. And Christ wants to bring you freedom. And this is what's setting up the next chapters. The fruits of what frees you. The fruits of the Spirit. He's like, we'll feel this strife in, or this battle in our hearts. And sometimes we feel that tension to try to live a way that's a bit legalistic. To try to live a way that is according to the flesh. We feel that battle. Not only do we feel it in like outside of here, but we feel it here too. And Paul wants them to root out what is enslaving them and keeping them from stepping into freedom. What's keeping them from walking in the freedom in Christ. I'll invite Warren and the worship team here. And we're just going to close. Paul ends by encouraging us that we are no longer slaves. We are no longer slaves to ourselves anymore, but we have been freed. And so, where do we end? How do we close this? How do, I, how do we wrap this up? What do we take? We can see how Paul has shown the Galatians that what he has taught them, the gospel, makes them heirs of God. Maybe you're on your own initiative. Maybe you feel like you're just trying to push through on your own. Maybe you feel that, that weight. Maybe you feel the burden. You feel tired. You feel like, I just can't do it. When we do on our own initiative, we, we feel barren. We feel like we can't produce anything. Christ wants to speak into the barrenness. At the end, I'm just going to open up a time for prayer here. And why we do it is because this. We go, yes, this is good, that's great. Oh, I know what I need to do. Sometimes we go back home, we do the same thing. Sometimes when we take a step, we ask someone to pray for us in a certain specific area, in a situation, we literally come and we say, I can't do this anymore. We say, I I'm not, I'm not going to try to do this all in my own strength. I need to talk to you about this. I feel barren, yeah. Can we pray into the barrenness? I feel like I'm doing it on my own strength. I mean, I can't. I just need help remembering the promises. Can we, can we pray for that? We can come to Christ, to those things that we feel are entrapping us, that is slaving us, maybe anger and fear. Maybe you feel that there's that battle in your heart, that fleshly battle happening. 
Like Paul was talking to the Galatians. You feel that battle, the flesh. I remember one time Kim prayed for this girl who just had this, she you could just tell, depressed. She was stricken by fear. You could just see it on her face. She went up. Kim prayed for her. And then after, she just, this countenance just changed, full of joy and happiness. There's freedom. Christ has set us free. We're free indeed. But there's still those things that try to grab at our heel, maybe those past things that we want to pray into and against. And so, I'll be down here. We're going to, Warren's going to lead us in song. And then uh, we can stand. Let's stand together as I pray. And if you want prayer as Warren singing, feel free to come on down. I'd love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give freedom. Lord, that we are sons of Abraham. Because of you, Jesus. Father, we pray against those things that try to entangle us, Lord, our own initiative, trying to do things on our own strength, Lord. We pray into those situations that seem barren, that seem hopeless, that seem like nothing can come of it, but we just remember that empty tomb and how you turn something into nothing. We know that you can do that in our lives.